This week, we will be taking a brief hiatus from the personal stories of life after sport. Instead, we have brought a subject matter expert onto the pod for this episode, Professor David Lavallee of Abertay University in Dundee, Scotland. Lavallee's 25 years in academia have centered on the well-being and welfare of participants in sport. His research has focused on contributing to theoretical developments associated with self-identity and coping processes in athletics. Lavallee is perhaps the world's leading expert on retirement from sport, burnout, support for student-athletes, and managing transitions across the career of athletes and coaches. His academic qualifications include a master's degree from Harvard University and a PhD from the University of Western Australia. Professor Lavallee has been invited to present his research in 18 countries, including 24 keynote addresses. In 2017, he was appointed as the world's first professor of duty of care in sport, a role that has him oversee and spearhead international research and education on a vast range of issues, from bullying and harassment to equality and inclusion. Not to mention, before this incredible career in academia, Professor Lavallee was a high school All-American and New Hampshire Gatorade State Player of the Year. So it's all kinds of cool and special that he has taken some time to talk to Run Along today. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becky, you're well placed. I could play one more down. Keep this jersey on one more play. I give it my all. It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. Well, thank you so much, Professor Lavallee, for coming on to the podcast. Um, it's really an honor. I want to be respectful of your time so we can jump right into it. You were quite the soccer player back in the day, an All-American, New Hampshire Gatorade Player of the Year in 1986. How did you get into the academic world of sports? No, thanks. I um, I mean, that's. I, I think first I, I'd like to say as well, I think congratulations, Hannah, on, on the Run Along um, podcast. I think it's a really good initiative. I, it's, it's nice to sort of be on 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 it and just share my own experiences i think going back to that i, I think that was another life for me but I, I i really i loved sport i absolutely loved sports growing up played lots of soccer basketball baseball really anything i could play and i was i was really interested um in psychology as well and sports psychology for me was almost a a, a perfect marriage of being able to to sort of do that i I don't know. I don't know. I, I was probably sort of 21, 22, and I sort of thought I'd really like to sort of be an academic. That that lifestyle seemed very good. The opportunity to travel the world, learn new knowledge. You know, I, I was really curious about lots of things to do with psychology and sport, and it just to, to have that as a job seemed like a really, really nice thing. So I've got no regrets with that. It was really, um, you know, really good opportunities for me that I've been presented with. And to say you've been successful in the field is, is quite an understatement. 
You're very prolific. You've done a ton of work on burnout, the athletic psyche in time of injury and rehab, and then, of course, the main reason you got dragged into this podcast, Athletes Coping with Retirement. How did you kind of develop the interest in how I'm thinking of it right now, athlete as wounded animal, athlete in times of psychological distress? I actually had a really good transition out of sport, I think, because I, I spent, I, you know, I've done a lot of research on retirement and the transition out of sport. And a lot of people ask me all the time, you know, did I have this really traumatic experience? And I didn't. I had a really positive experience out of sport. And I think that influenced part of it. I also, I, I just, I think transitions are a really interesting way to study um, psychology and, and, and people. You know, we all experience so many different transitions. And I just thought the transition out of sport, would, would, you know, presented a way to be able to look at people before and after such a significant event. Um, so that was sort of what I chose to do for a PhD. Um, I did a PhD. Very, I was very lucky to go to the University of Western Australia um, in Perth and study there. And, and, and choosing that was, was something that was just really, really interesting to me because you had people who you could look at who, um, you know, who were, were thriving within the sport and then, you know, for lots of different reasons had to stop playing and some had very positive experiences, some had very negative experiences. And, and probably for the first maybe 15, 20 years of my academic career, I've, I really focused on that negative side, almost the the counseling side of it, looking at, at at how people cope with that. But I've sort of flipped it over the last five years and I've really tried to look at what are the positive out, outcomes, uh, what are the positive experiences that people have when they plan and engage in planning for their retirement. And that kind of is a nice segue into this next question. You were appointed as the world's first professor of duty of care in sport in August 2017. Can you explain what is meant by duty of care? Yeah. I think duty of care is is very much looking after the safety and the welfare of, 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 of others. Now, in sport, um, there's obviously been a lot of attention in recent years to do with, with different issues to do with safety uh, whether that's psychological safety, physical safety, emotional safety, uh, and different areas. And um, Abertay University um, created this position where they really wanted to make a, a, a contribution to this whole area of athlete welfare and well-being. What I get asked quite a bit is whether I'm a lawyer, because <laughs> there is a real legal angle to it. You know, in, 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 you know lawyers would have a very distinct definition of duty of care, which is what, what employers and different, you know, um, communities have to provide to people. And, and I'm not that. I come from a psychology background. So I'm more interested, I guess, on the moral side of, of, of that. But it's, 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 you know, it's a, it's a title that I really like. I, I, it creates a lot of intrigue. So many people are drawn to it and ask me, what does that mean? And it creates a real good way to be able to, to start conversations. Last year, in, in this role, you developed the Sports Census, the leading source of quality data about welfare and well-being in sport. What are the sorts of topics and issues the Sports Census addresses, and in what ways? Well, I, I sort of one thing I realized was that 
you know, different sports, different organizations, leagues, you know, um, entire systems were really struggling with this whole area. And, you know, week, week after week, you know, between sort of 2015 and 2017, there was a different sport under the spotlight being accused of all kinds of different things. And what I realized was sports um, weren't sure how to respond to what they were being asked of or what they were being challenged about. So I created the sports census as a tool to measure all the different areas that I think are relevant within um, duty of care and welfare and well-being. So things like safeguarding, transition, safety, the sort of the athlete voice, um, equality, uh, and, and mental health. And, and what, what, what it does is it allows the, the users to effectively collect some information and just provide a series of high-level um, scores across their organization of how well they're doing it in each area. And, 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 and we've seen with some, some really good um, feedback from some, some sports that have been using it, how it's helped them sort of make better decisions with resources that they have. It's created, you know, a more positive approach. The sports that have used it have got sort of a win just by doing it, by sort of giving somebody or allowing their athletes or their coaches or their entire organization the opportunity to have a voice independently um, is a win. And, and, and it, helps, it helps create trust. I think, at, at the, you know, at the end of the day, um, part of my reason for, for, for developing it was to help sports sort of protect and grow trust within the sport. Because I, what I saw was that a lot, of, a lot of people, because of different things like, gymna you know, the gymnastics scandal, lots of different scandals across the UK in sports, people were losing trust in sport. And, and you and I know all the different benefits that you can accrue from playing sport and all the, all, all the impacts. But if people don't trust it, you're going to do something else with your time. You're going to do something else. So if sports can demonstrate what they're doing, how they're trying to do that, they can recruit more people into their sport. They can retain more people and hopefully have a more sustainable system. So, yeah, let's say a team has looked at data gathered via the sports census Maybe it's a measurement of how their athletes are dealing with something like retirement transition. What's an example of a kind of approach or an intervention they could implement in their organization? Well, I, you know, if somebody realizes if they do this across um, across their organization, they realize that they're not providing enough or they're not delivering support, say, in the area of transition. Um, they could they could bring in different people. They could create different interventions to try to see with the resources they have whether they can provide a better service. I think you know a big part of the way I've set this up is it, it, it's it's based in sort of two ways. It, it measures how much support that that everybody perceives the sport provides, um, but then it also measures how much they actually receive when they need it. So if somebody needed support in transition, when they're asked if they, you know, if they receive very good support, you know, that's that's that sport will, will probably score very highly. But people that don't, if the sport knows that, they can they can try to do all kinds of different interventions. Now, I don't provide the interventions. I just provide the the information and the mm -hmm. tool that allows them to gather 
the information make decisions. So does that does that answer your question? Yes, definitely. And I suppose this is a case study in a way to think about how the sports census might actually be used. In 2017, you were commissioned by the National Rugby League to conduct an independent research study that looked at the effects of the career-wise program on the league. This program was designed to help players plan for life after rugby, make well-informed future career choices, and develop the skills and knowledge required to successfully manage their ongoing careers. What were the findings from that study? It was, it's a really exciting study, and it was a privilege to work with uh, National Rugby League in Australia because they had been very innovative in, in the way that they were trying to engage all of their players to, um, to participate in, in career and education alongside their sport. So, so rugby league is a professional sport in Australia, um, but they wanted all the players and were encouraging all the players to either go to college, to university, or to have a job alongside what they were doing. So what, what I was asked to do was, was to measure and combine two different data sets that they had. One was their performance data that they had week on week um, on the field. And also um, the other uh, data set was to what extent the players were engaging in career and education planning also week on week. And what was fascinating was that the engagement in the career transition planning predicted performance on the field. What that meant was that the people that were engaged in a job outside of their sport or they were going to college and they were doing something else were outperforming those players that weren't. Mm. And that was very consistent across all the different, they had 16 different clubs. So it was, it was fascinating to see because, um, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of the research behind this would, would suggest that people experience something called cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance in, in a very simple way is just an, you know, is a way to sort of explain when people have two sort of contrasting pressures that they might have in two different areas of their life. It could be school, and sport, it could be work and sport, it could be anything. Um, and, and people tend to focus on one and, and have this belief that the other is a waste of time. So um, National Rugby League, through their interventions, through their career-wise program, were able to, to shift that cognitive distance in a way that the players valued the, their engagement in that more than just focusing on their, just their performance solely. And in doing so, they actually were able to find um, some performance gains that had never been seen before. And from my perspective, present a really, really exciting future for that whole area. Wow. Yeah, that's super exciting to hear. I definitely, I think there's this idea that just the more time you're putting into your sport, the more sacrifices you're making that that will equal better athletic performance. So to hear that that's not really true is is encouraging. Well, I think so many sports have invested in it because a lot of times they feel that it's um, it's the right thing to do, that they're providing a duty of care. However, um, since the findings have come out, the amount of sports and the amount of people and leaders within those organizations, managers, owners, who have become interested in this, who had never been interested in it before, are, is really, really fascinating. 
So I would really keep an eye on that through your, 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 your podcast because I do think there's a shift in the view because if people see this as a performance gain, you know, planning for your career transition enhances your performance. There's just, there's a win-win there for the, for the athlete and for the, um, for the sports themselves. And actually coupling with that understanding, which this really took off in the beginning of, of this year, is the More to Me campaign. What are the core ideas of that initiative? Yeah, the English Institute of Sport um, launched uh, yeah, this campaign, hashtag More to Me, which was very much trying to um, showcase and, 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 and support athletes and really the entire system to have an understanding that if you support people beyond um, them just being an athlete, that they actually might be a better athlete. And, 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 and the amount of um, you know, uh, support that that has gotten right from the highest level of, of the UK government you know, to support, to support that has been really good. And, 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 you know, a lot of athletes have come forward with their own stories. I know part of your podcast is just, you know, looking to collect stories. There might be something there where you can, you can look at one of these British athletes that is sharing their stories um, using that hashtag, because it's definitely picked up quite a bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm asking you to essentially synthesize your 25 plus year career in academia. But do you think you could tell our listeners some of the things that can affect the transition out of sport or the coping with that loss for a lifelong athlete? You know, whether that's gender or type of sport or country context? Yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate to, to have um, the opportunity. I've, I've studied over 15,000 sort of elite level athletes now who have made the transition out of sport. And certainly one of the most significant um, areas is, is identity. I mean, identity is such a malleable sort of construct, something that just changes so regularly. And I think people that, that invest so much into something that they want to do when, that, when they no longer can do that is, um, is really, really difficult. Um, I, I, I've learned I've learned that athletes are um, you know do have the resources. I think a lot of a lot of times people a lot of athletes just need to be aware that they have the coping resources to be able to make the transition. I know there's been a lot of work on transferable skills in that area and raising awareness of that. So things like more to me I think can help that. But I, I, I've come to believe that I think athletes have that capacity in them and it's just being able to be aware of those and be able to, to position those um, quite well. Something really interesting I saw um, recently, and I don't know if you've seen any of this in, 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 um, in, in your work, um, but there are these free sort of um, resume um, creators now where you can, you can um, upload videos of of different experiences that you have and it works exceptionally well for athletes where an athlete can demonstrate and show in a video clip as part of this you know this this really dynamic resume you know teamwork communication when an employer is looking to see something and need that need evidence of it of integrity you know you can demonstrate i think it works so well 
for athletes in transition to be able to, to, to show that. There's all kinds of free versions of that, but it, it's really, I don't know if you've seen that before. Um, well, I remember that when I was in college, we had a classroom session, decently informative, and it was about how to talk about your student athlete experience in job interviews. But yeah, what you're talking about, that seems next level. Well, I just, I think it's for everybody, you know, and everybody can use it. But for somebody who's played sport and who has that, I think, you know, employers want to see evidence of what people have done and the skills that they have. And I think just sport is just so exciting to be able to do that. And I'll just say one other thing then. I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not. Um, but I, I, the other thing I've learned is, is I've certainly tried to make a conscious effort to not always use the term athlete, given its potential negative impact on identity. Um, and the reason I say that is I think... You know, I've, I've got a colleague who worked in, um, who works in, um, who has worked with the NRL teams, um, Jane, Jane Lauder, and she sort of talked about how they made a change in, in, in moving away from the term athletes because they believed it was counterintuitive to be advising people to broaden their identities and, and their sense of self, while at the same time giving them a single label of athlete. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, it definitely does to me, at least. Just thinking about how powerful language and titles can be. Um, I joke in my podcast that on campuses, sometimes you'll hear the term NARP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, non-athlete, regular people, person. And that, speaking, speaking from my personal experience, had some real impact on how people viewed themselves, how people viewed others, and maybe how they navigated spaces. Yeah. So for advisors, if any, if any sort of career, you know, sports career advisors, career counselors, you know, are listening, if they're part of your, your listeners to, to, the, to your podcast, I just think labeling them as an athlete, I think while they're trying to broaden their identities in some ways doesn't make much sense. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, people that just happen to play sports, you know, the individual, you know, Jane Doe, who just happens to play lacrosse, you know, is it, 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 you know, th- that person who plays something is better than calling them an athlete. I'm not saying to get rid of the, the term athlete forever, but I just think when people are working with 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 them, I've learned that labeling them in that way um, consistently in a single way doesn't seem to 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 match what what the intervention is trying to do. So um, I was reading your work under Professor Grove when you were getting your PhD. And I just find this interesting to think about um, a bit of discussion about the gender differences in coping with retirement transition. I was wondering if maybe you can just talk about account making, which is a concept that you use and suggest throughout that article. Yeah, so what we did was um, part of the intervention that we looked at and part of some of the research that we had done was was using a particular model from a social psychologist named John Harvey from the, the University of Iowa. And we were looking at his idea of account making, which effectively is storytelling and, 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 and trying to use that as a way for people to be able to um, have a voice and help to understand their own their own story. Um, and their own experiences. 
And we had, there were some interesting sort of gender differences from the perspective of, of coping, um, where in, in some ways some of the, the male athletes um, perceived that, that they had better coping skills than, than females, but the reality was that it was, it was very similar. Um, and, 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 and a really interesting finding, it's something I'll share with you, which um, is another more recent study that I've been involved in. Um, there's a charity here called the Dame Kelly Holmes Trust. Kelly Holmes was a double gold Olympian in the UK, and she had um, a really traumatic, um, you know, publicly she says she had a very traumatic experience uh, from when she retired and just experienced this sense of loss. And the whole account making model was to try to help people understand um, and overcome their loss. So, so she funded some research. Their organization funded, not she didn't, their organization funded some research. And it's another more than, but it was more, it was the, the, the project was called More Than Medals. And, and what we found was that um, athletes were performing better than controlled non-athletes on the job in certain jobs. So um, we had a, a control group of, of, we had a group of athletes that had left sport that were working in different fields. So it might be accounting, it might be law, it might be different. And then we found and we matched a controlled cohort with them. And we asked their supervisors, their line managers to effectively appraise their performance. And the athletes were outperforming the control on the job. So we were arguing that athletes were actually more employable, a very employable group of people. But what was really interesting was all the research findings in that, the gender differences were much more significant for females. So the females were benefiting a lot more. They were, they were even better in their job than other controlled females <laughs> and male athletes compared to other controlled male, males, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. And have there been any findings related to how much type of sport matters, uh, individual versus team? I think, I think I, yeah, there is. When you look at, um, we did a systematic review in, in 2012 with a, um, a PhD student named Sunghee Park, and she was able to look at, at, at that. And there seemed to be more um, opportunities within team sports for people to learn and develop transferable skills. But interestingly, the, 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 the application of that um, didn't seem to have much of a difference. So my, I would always theorize that there, there might be more benefits to be had by playing team sports, um, but, but, but the, the evidence doesn't seem to be that way. And also, um, the evidence doesn't seem to suggest um, that the experience in whether the transition out of sport is, is, is good or bad makes too much of a difference whether it's, it's an individual or team sport. And once again, I've always thought that team sports might be more difficult to make a transition out of, but it tends to be about, about the same. That actually, that surprises me. With team sports, you have like what is often such a tight knit group. And I know losing that social support can be a particularly sharp dagger when you retire. So I would have assumed what you just said, but it's interesting that there isn't actually that much of a difference. Well, I wonder, yeah, I mean, I wonder whether people that don't have 
maybe who, people who play individual sports who might not have the support network there around them um, might might do things to, to build that. I think people call it their entourage. People <laughs> might have their entourage. You know, you find other ways with 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 um, you know you. you you know, social support comes from lots of different different areas. It might come from teammates, but it might come from friends. It might come from family. So people in individual sports might find a way to build that that social support network as much as that others. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's just a theory. Has there been much research done on the relationship between how a competitive career ends and the coping with the transition into retirement? Yeah. I mean, I would assume that you know, if your career ends because of injury, that that is a very different experience than just, say, old age. But maybe even on just like the super micro level, if, you know, you lose your last game in the state championship versus your career just kind of puttering out. Uh, Yeah, I know there's been a lot of research around that. And it's all around control. To what extent somebody has control over their decision to leave? And, you know, there's some really famous examples. Michael Jordan's a great example. And, you know, he retired from basketball three times. And he, his quote kept being, you know, it was, it was the itch that needed to be scratched. And he was just, he just always needed to be competitive. So even though it was his decision, he was leaving, it still didn't make it any easier because there was something else he wanted to achieve. So I, I think the example you give is a really good one. So one of the key factors in that is, is, is achieving your sport-related goals. People that, that achieve their sport-related goals um, have a much, a much, ha, a, tend to have a much smoother transition out of sport than those that don't. Mm. Um, but it is, it's around this whole issue of control and to what extent you, um, you, you can make that decision yourself. So the people that, that have to make an involuntary um, exit out, whether it's an injury or or they get cut or, or, or something like that. It's, um, it's really hard. And I think for people that have invested so much in it, um, you know, I think there's, I don't know, I still don't see enough being done to support the people who, are, who have to make those decisions just to tell people when they might be being cut or they're maybe not gonna, gonna make. Mm-hmm. There's some awful stories that you may see where, you know, somebody gets dropped by text you know, you know, just return your return your gear to the uh, to the sports hall. You know, in in forty eight hours. You know, and they've been playing for the for the the team for twelve years. Uh, because, but but that person who's doing that might not know. They may have never been trained on how to actually deliver that. Mm-hmm. And that to me, that's all. That's all about what this duty of care means. It, there's a duty of care to everybody in the system to support each other. So people that do that, it's no excuse. I mean, that's a terrible thing to do with a text. But if that person's ever been trained, they might genuinely think that's the easiest way to do it. That's the best way to do it. And it's done mm-hmm. rather than sitting down and trying to do something or trying to actually have some some way to recognize all the, the service that somebody may have provided. Some sports do it really, really well, to be fair. You know, they have they have, um, you know, almost events for people at the end of their career. But people that, 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 that do have to end it very, very abruptly, um, this whole, like I said, this whole notion of identity, when they've invested in that so much, their identity might be so strong and, and exclusively tied to their sport. When they wake up the next day, it's just going to be really hard in terms of where you go with that. Hmm. 
And just a couple more questions for you. I'm thinking of, you know, you see these headlines, former NFL star blows all his savings in three months, or you see overweight retired athletes, pictures splashed in the papers. What individual or greater social misconceptions do you think we have about athletes who retire? And how does that contribute to the retirement experience and adjusting to the next chapter for former athletes? It's a great question. It's a great question. I think one insight I've learned, um, and I don't know if this exactly answers your question. Tell me if it, tell me if it does, because I think I think you're coming at it from, or I'm coming at it maybe from a different perspective. But I see. I think I think people who make the transition out of sport are actually genuinely quite phenomenally caring individuals. I think people experience something called, or a lot of people experience something called generativity. Um, and that's sort of a stage of human development where people, you know, transcend their own personal interests and, and want to focus on supporting future generations. It happens a lot to people when they experience something really traumatic. You want to help, you know, others in the future so that it doesn't happen. A lot of people, you know, run a marathon to raise money for something. Uh, you know, that's a very generative act. Um, and the psychologist that sort of coined that was named Eric Erickson. And not everybody reaches that stage, but I think athletes, um, you know, more so than the norm, um, quite a significant number want to contribute to the next generation mm-hmm. um, by caring and sharing and engaging with work that helps pass on their own experiences in a positive way. I would guess, you know, various people you've had on the show, on your podcast, you know, part of that, that, that works, part of that, the sharing of that is a generative experience. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking to share that in a positive way. And I don't think people necessarily see it that way. Mm. I mean, I'm just thinking about how many former athletes get into coaching. And I th- I think that that kind of relates to what you're saying. It does. Well, uh, yeah. And I think sometimes sometimes it almost seems like the natural thing to do. Sometimes it, re- it protects their athletic identity. And that's not, not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, coaches who make the transition out of coaching sometimes with a, a really strong athletic identity, you know, have a really difficult time, just like, just like athletes. But this notion of giving back, I think, is really important. So I, I do, I really see, um, certainly through my research, you know, athletes are very, athletes who have made a transition out of sport are very willing to share that experience. Um, and, 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 and I think there's a lot to be, you know, there's, a, there's quite a powerful force there with that, where people want to share and help others in the future. And like I said, you might see some of that from some of the speakers on your podcast. Yeah, definitely. And to cap things off here, for our listeners that are still involved in sports, maybe headed into that final season, any advice for them as they get ready to hang up their shoes or maybe some advice for the recently retired? I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a good, it's a good question. I think, like I said, I, th- I think the ability to be able to set the right goals where you can achieve them, if those are realistic and people can leave on their terms in the way that, that, that they want, they've achieved what they want, I think they're going to have, have, have a lot of satisfaction and, and you know, and be able to um, leave the sport in a positive way. I also think recognizing that, you know, sport, because because of the cycle in the way sport works, sometimes 
that they're sort of, rec you know, their, maybe their service or their participation isn't recognized. And that's not necessarily the fault of the organization or the sports, but I do think sports and managers and coaches, I think, can do a lot better in, in helping recognize what people are trying to, to achieve um, as they make the transition out of sport. Because when, when something ends, it's very, very difficult, you know, and that's why coming back to what I said at the beginning, this whole notion of a transition, transition is about change and recognizing that it's going to be a change, I think is probably one of the um, one of the important things that people could do. Yeah, and you already kind of answered this, but anything for coaches who manage athletes or administrators that oversee teams, maybe? Well, my big one, my big one, and it comes from the NRL study, is that I think the performance gains over the next 20 years aren't going to come from technology or from facilities, but they're going to become they're going to come from providing support to individuals when they need it. And I don't think there'll be sort of small marginal gains. They'll be significantly greater. And I just think if, if people people that are responsible for athletes, if they can recognize that if you can support people, people that might have mental health issues, they, that, you know, they want to plan for their transition out of sport early they start to play if those people are supported they can do they can continue to do even more phenomenal things or you know in their sport so not seeing it as sort of a um you know something that has to be sacrificed in order to 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 achieve some gains so this this win-win for me is something i'm really trying to promote based upon the research i've done mm. Well, Professor Lavallee, thank you so much again for coming on to the show and sharing your research. I'm really glad to be able to highlight this perspective to kind of give a framework to the personal firsthand accounts that we've given a platform for on the show. Well, I hope, I hope, yeah, I hope it helps. Like I said, I, I've, I've been very privileged to have the opportunity to, um, study you know people that are that that are doing that and people have been very very um you know generous in sharing their experiences with that so i really wish you all the best uh with the podcast as it continues to uh move forward thank you for listening and hope to see you next time <laughs>